Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tej Talks. If you haven't left a review, please do. If you listen on Spotify or non-Apple products, you can go on your Apple computer, go on the podcast app, or go on the Facebook page, the Tej Talks podcast, and leave a review. Uh, so today, we have James Soto on the show. You, you'll probably recognize him. This is, this is like the 14th time he's been on the show, um, because we do the Property Duo uh, dual podcast together. But this time, we're focusing on his story and some of his lessons. So this is a proper, normal Wednesday TED Talks episode. We speak about planning uplift, new build developments in London, uh, a previous vendor failing, I think, 12 times to get planning, and James coming in and getting it within six months. Also, how he invests in the North and his print business first that went into... Um, insolvency and all the lessons he learned from that so this is a really good episode james is a good uh communicator and storyteller so i think you're really gonna enjoy this and it's uh, it's quite entertaining as well we always have fun when we do these podcasts if you're looking to invest please drop me a message please follow me on uh, instagram ted.talks uh, i'm on youtube as well some of these podcasts are recorded so if you want to see my overgrown hair or, or, or bush on my head then please go to youtube james sohoto welcome to the Tesh talks podcast Thank you very much for having me, Tej. This is the 14th time you're on the podcast, so it's not exactly a new <laughs> thing technically because of our Property Duo show, but this is an interview. This is a normal Wednesday episode of Tej Talks. So I will be interviewing you because you have done some very varied and in different areas stuff in property. And of course, before property, you have a, a famous or infamous story, which I think there's a lot we can learn from. So... Before we get into the cool stuff you're doing now, planning uplifts, developments, HMOs, investing in London, new builds, etc. Talk to me, like, who was James Sohota before property? What was he doing? Uh, well, Ted, yeah, like um, most uh, young Asian men at the time, I was young. Um, I know you like to, uh, you know, have a have a laugh and a joke at my age, which is, you know, often quite nice. But yeah, you know, I did the I did the typical thing, like, you know, I I went to school didn't do very good in school, went through college, managed to get to university somehow, got a degree, got a master's degree, trained as a teacher uh, and worked as a teacher. A lot of people don't know this about me, that I did actually spend a three-year stint working as a graphic design teacher in all boys schools in London. I chose all boys schools on purpose because I felt it was very easy to get along with, um, you know, boys who had troubles in the sense that I could relate to them because I went through the same thing growing up. Um, so, yeah, I did teaching for a while and I realized very, very early on that it wasn't a profession that was going to make me any serious uh, money or wealth. Um, I'm not dissing the the teaching profession because my wife's a teacher and I think it does some fantastic things. It's a very rewarding profession. But I realized very, very early on that it just wasn't for me, man. You know, I couldn't see myself doing this for the next 40 years of my life, coming in, taking a register and teaching kids. It was just, no, I'm not doing it. So, you know, I always had a, uh, a love for design, um, trained as a product designer, did industrial design, and was a graphic design teacher, so it was always design related. I remember very early on, um, before my dad passed away, um, one of the things he taught me to do was draw and to create things. And I still hold that memory quite fondly because, you know, um, 
this is where it all started. It all started with him giving me a set of pencils and some paper and some drawing books and teaching me how to draw and create things. You know, he gave me a book that looked at uh, industrial uh, drawing. So we were drawing buildings and then there was a book that looked at portrait or animals. So I got a real flair for drawing at an early age and I just loved it. I love to color. I love to change the piece of paper into something. So I knew there was that kind of design desire there from very early on as a child. So uh, when I eventually decided I was going to leave teaching, it's a, you know, I decided halfway through the day that I'm going to go, you know, I just had enough. I couldn't take orders from somebody who was unqualified. My head of department at the time was an international teacher. She was unqualified to do the job. And I just couldn't take it that somebody was telling me that, no, you need to come in and do this and do that when you're not qualified in the system to tell me. So, you know, in true James style, I got my cardboard box. I literally went like this on my desk and scooped everything into the box. And I walked out, you know, my car was outside. I remember it was a nice sunny day. The kids are on the table. You got to remember this is an inner London school. So the boys are not very well behaved. It's not a private school. It's not a great school. They're on the tables, jumping up and down, clapping. Go on, sir. Go on, sir. Yes, sir. And, you know, that just spurred me on a little bit more. So I get outside. I had a nice old classic 900 Saab convertible. It was a sunny day. I put the roof down and I got in my car and I just drove off into the wind. And, you know, I felt excellent for all of a couple of hours. So I parked the car up at home, got to the pub, had a pint and thought, you know what? This is going to be a great life. I had a second pint and I thought to myself, OK, it's got a little bit real now. You know, you've just given up a job where you were earning some decent money to do what you want to do. So, you know, I had my third pint and it all became a little bit real. I started asking myself, damn, have I done the right thing? Should I ring the school back and say, look, I'm really sorry. I was having a nervous breakdown. You know, um, I wasn't sure if it was the right decision, but I didn't do that. I walked home and, you know, I got home and I had to try and explain this to my mum who was living with me at the time. And, you know, she, I've just newly taken on a mortgage, quite a hefty mortgage. And she knew I was struggling to get by with things. And now the fact that I've quit my job as well, it was kind of having the reaction from an Indian mum. And in two, true Indian mum style, she was like, what have you done? You quit your job? You bloody idiot. And I just remember this hand coming out from the air in slow motion going, you know, like an Indian mum can hit you no matter how old you are. Yeah, there ain't no rules. You don't get to like 18 and you don't get beat. If you're Indian, your parents are allowed to beat you till the day you die or they die. Simple as that is the rule. <laughs> anyway, so we got over this and I had to try and explain to her. I said, look, mum, I've got 26 days to make my next mortgage payment. I've got a plan. I'm going to do it. Now, you know, I didn't just walk out without not having a plan because that would have been just completely stupid. Uh, and, you know, as stupid as I can be at the best of times, this was not that, you know, I was running a small eBay business at the time. eBay was just really coming to light that time. And so was Amazon was quite fresh where uh, private sellers could start selling on there. I had a small printer, an A3 printer from my university days that we used to print our project files out and design files. And one of my friends said to me, he goes, James, have you ever thought about just selling some pictures online? And I was like, oh, who's going to buy pictures online? He goes, you know, like pictures of nice cars iconic scenes and all that so you know went on to google images advanced search high high mp <laughs> higher megabyte photos and found some classic pictures of some nice cars and you know i started selling a3 prints at like 15 quid a pop and i'm thinking man this is good business you know 
The picture's costing me nothing to find, which is, wasn't totally legit at the time, obviously. It wasn't as strongly um, uh, drummed down back then as it is now. You know, if you, now they've got various software that just knows you're using a picture on your website when you shouldn't be. So I started selling these pictures and I soon realized, whoa, I'm making two, three thousand pounds a month here. And people wanted these pictures. And this money I was getting, I thought, you know what? I'm going to reinvest it and I'm going to buy a bigger printing machine. So alongside while I was teaching, I had this small business going in the background and it started growing to the point where my wages from my kind of side hustle had started to exceed what I was earning as a teacher. And like anybody who's had a side hustle, when that happens, you kind of get this ego boost and this cockiness where you think, nah, you can sack me anytime you want because I'm earning bare peas. You guys can't, you guys can't keep me here anymore. I can just go failing that you might be in a contract or failing that you might be committed to work for him. But I had this business going and I knew I was making this money on the side. So I knew I could service my mortgage. You know, I had no business since then. I didn't know what profit was, didn't know what loss was, didn't know that there was a net, there was a gross and all this. Just knew there was a chunk coming into the account each month and I could service the loan. So when I quit, um, it was just one week before a machine was arriving to my house. So all the money I made, I invested it back into a bigger printer so that I could start selling bigger images. And I expanded the range, really. I, you know, I started selling the old canvas pictures that you see in people's houses. I expanded the range. I started a little website. Back then, there was none of this Shopify. There was none of this Wix. You had to find a coder to make your website. I found a chap in India. He designed me this lovely website, but what the idiot didn't do was he didn't restrict what you could upload to the server, to the SQL server. Normally you'd say, okay, restrict JPEG images or TIFF images. This idiot allowed code and .exe files and all sorts. So obviously some hacker saw that, sent a script up to the website and just crashed the whole website. <laughs> so that was a lovely little lesson to learn. Anyway, again, that didn't stop me. Most people would think, you know what, Joe, I'm going to stop here. Forget it. I'm not going to go any further. Um, my new machine arrives and I'm like, whoa, six grand's worth of printer. It was huge. It had to come in through the front window. All the neighbors are looking, thinking, oh, what's this Indian guy up to? Because I'm the only, I was the only Indian at the time on the street. So it was a little bit, uh, it was a little bit suspect, so to say. A big box arrives, a square box from a foreign country. Anyway. Box arrives, we set up the machine. And I'm thinking, you know, it's running lovely. I'm selling bigger pictures. We've gone from 2,000 to 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000. Turnover's growing. We're offering a great service. Everything's going great. James being James is thinking, how can I make even more money? You know, not being satisfied by delivering a perfect service. I thought, I know. I'll reach out to the Indians again and try and get cheaper ink for the machine. Worst thing I ever did, man. So this ink arrives. I put it in the machine. And within a week, Ted, it melts all the pipes. So the machine's a water-based machine. They send me a strong solvent ink and all the pipes melt and it messes up this machine that was, you know, six grand or something like that. Now, most people at that stage of the thought, you know what, forget it. I am not doing this no more. I'm out. I didn't think that. I thought to myself, you know what, let's go on. Let's order another machine. We'll carry on going and we'll, we'll you know, we'll, we'll build the business up again and uh, We'll be good. We'll be good. Second machine arrives. I can categorically say I have never used anything but manufacturer's ink since. Non-compatibles or nothing because it's a lesson that hurt so bad and it still sits with me today almost 15 years later. I still remember it uh, and the pain is raw. Um, so um, the business grew uh, from my bedroom to my front room. 
And then from my front room, it went into my kitchen, which became my package station. And my mum on her days off was, you know, my, my packing queen. She was there packing parcels for me, printing off DHA labels, sticking them on, talking to the driver who used to arrive, making him cups of tea to collect parcels. I couldn't work out why the driver always came to me right towards the end of the day. Then it suddenly hit because he knew what day his mum was at home and she, she would make him something to, you know, like an Indian mum would have a cup of tea. Would you like a sandwich? This guy thought he was in heaven. You know, he used to sit there for a good half an hour. But anyway, after that, um, I, I, I met my wife and we got married. And, you know, it comes a point where you think your house can no longer be your production facility, you know. So we moved into our first commercial unit, which was quite small, like a thousand square foot. Um, business grew again. Within two years, we moved to 4,000 square foot. Um Again, we kept reinvesting, kept reinvesting. I was very, very good at spotting the trends in the print market because I say when you're in a business, you need to be fixated in that trade and just learn everything about that trade, you know, consume it, eat it, live it, sleep it. And that's exactly what I was doing. I was looking at the trends. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? And I think that really worked in my favor because I was investing in kit when people were very unsure. And I think if you start investing in kit when people are very, very sure, there's already too many people in the market and the competition's already there. So, yeah, I'd constantly invest profits back in, back in, back in. We grew, we grew, we expanded again. So we expanded probably four or five times after that. Fast forward up to two years ago when we were in 20,000 square foot, which is, a, you know, a huge facility. For anybody who doesn't know, it was like a mini supermarket. There was a proper production facility going on. There's kit in there that was worth a million quid, like single machines worth a million quid. And we were doing some really good work. You know, I diversified from printing small pictures at home to canvases, to building signs, to building exhibition spaces, to like really going to town and building some really, really kind of uh, um, nice bespoke pieces for people. Um Yeah, yeah. You know, we were really good at uh, drawing the right attention on on places like LinkedIn. So we had agencies that were working directly with Facebook. We did stuff with Google. We were doing stuff with Guinness, Microsoft. They regularly we had big brands going through the machines all the time. And, you know, sometimes I used to finish at the end of a day and, and walk around the factory. And I used to think, James, how did this go from being a side hustle to being, you know, uh, a business that people were actually quite threatened of, you know, companies that were 20 years older than us or 10 years older than us were thinking, where has this James guy just come from? You know, it, it's it's like someone's clicked the fingers and he's appeared and he's appeared in a big way with comparable kit. He's taking our clients, he's servicing them better. He knows how to talk to them. And I think this is where we talk about disrupting a scene. I was quite well, very good at disrupting that scene because I'd come along and taken an old man's game. And when I joined the print sector, you know, there wasn't many brown faces around. In fact, I would say it was very limited, a handful of brown faces. And at the scale I was, it was almost unheard of. And I really used that to my advantage. Being a face that sticks out, I used that to market myself. I'd make sure I was at every trade show. I'd fly out to Germany, uh, places like uh, France, Belgium, to attend all these shows because I wanted everybody to know who I am. Like yourself, Ted, your yellow shirt, your branding. You walk into a room, everybody knows who you were. I was a fat Indian guy with a beard. Everyone knew who I was, you know. Nice way to describe Uncle James. I was quite hurt by that. It didn't let me scar me. But anyway, point being, I disrupted the print industry. 
Tedge, everything was going fantastically. You know, I had everything I wanted. I had the nice cars. I was spending money like it was going out of fashion. And just so One people thing... have an idea of the size of the business, what was the turnover like at its peak? I mean, we, at its peak, we were kind of close to nearly 5 million quid. Okay. So good, good for people to understand the kind of financial size of what we're talking about here as well. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where we were at the absolute peak of it. And it would have only just grown and grown and grown. You know, it was a perfect life. There was a lot of things that got neglected, like my marriage got neglected, my children got neglected. When I look back now, there was a lot of things that suffered to get to where I was. Um, but at the same time, it was a journey that I was loving. I was really enjoying it. Uh, and I just love to work hard and I love the flipping hustle, man. I love just getting that next deal. Um, so what happens next? I kind of, I develop pneumonia. I'm off work for nearly nine weeks. Pneumonia nearly kills me. I have a bad team in place. I always knew my team was shaky. You know, you know when something's not right, but you ignore it. And the way I ignored it was by giving them a little bit of extra money or upping their responsibility, paying them a better salary to keep them happy. But I wasn't addressing any fundamental issues. I was covering everything over, sweeping it under the carpet. Like my wife says, you always sweep it under the carpet and hope it goes away. And, you know, ultimately that cost me my business. We lost three clients in the space of me being ill, which equated to around a million pounds worth of business. And a million pounds worth of business to lose that was a real kick in the nuts. And, you know, it took me a long time to build those clients up. And I just couldn't, I couldn't physically work out how I was going to get those clients back in such a short period of time. It was near on impossible. And one thing I wasn't prepared to do was risk my family home again, because I've risked it a few times. And I got to the point where I think deep down, I knew I'd lost my passion for it as well. When I got ill, you know, normally I would fight the illness. This illness forced me to stay in bed. Otherwise, it was going to kill me. You know, I was trying to fight it, but I wasn't really fighting it. You know, I was almost like, you know what? I've had enough, man. The energy's gone. I'm drained. I'm finished. I don't want to do this no more. And I think this happening maybe was a secret blessing in disguise because it just meant I had a reason for just thinking, you know what? Right. OK, this might be a good time to reassess everything. And don't get me wrong, if the business was still here today, I'm sure I could have changed it around and done different things. But, you know, I wouldn't be where I am now in a much happier place in an environment that I enjoy and working and connecting with people that are just great. So, yeah, in the end, it, you know, I had to apply for voluntary liquidation. And for people that don't know what voluntary liquidation is, it's just you putting up the hand saying, look, holding up the white flag saying, look, I, I don't think I'm going to make it through. I'm going to start trading insolvently. And before that ends up happening, I need some assistance. I need some liquidators to come in and clean up the mess. And that's exactly what they did. They dealt with the banks. They dealt with the higher purchase companies. And they, they basically liquidated the business. And I remember the day they walked in, it was 8.30 in the morning. I had to hand them over the keys. And that business was no longer mine. It was theirs, you know. And this was something that I built up from a very early age as a child and not a child, as a young guy before I even had my children. So this was my number one baby. You know, it was my baby before I had my kids. It was my baby before I met my wife. So it was like somebody had ripped something away from me that was so precious. And, you know, watching all your cars being driven onto a tow truck and being driven off down the road is, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's hurtful, man. And I think back now, it's only because I didn't have a physical attachment to those items that I was able to get over that. But I've seen so many people that acclimatize themselves to a certain lifestyle that when you lose it all, it's a real kick in the nuts and it hurts so badly. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't do that. And I'm glad I was able to kind of, you know, come back from that. And it wasn't easy, you know, 
after it happened, I spent probably the best part of three months drinking. You know, for me, I was getting up in the morning and just getting ready, pretending that I'm going out to sort myself out and I'd end up in a pub and just drink. And, you know, it was one of those things that just helped you relax and you felt a little bit better. But the worst thing is the more you drink, the more you become depressed and in the morning you feel worse. The problem never, ever goes away. And I quickly snapped out of it because I've got two young children. And I knew I had to pick myself up and carry on, you know. So in a nutshell, that's what James was doing prior to property. That was me and, and my life. And what what do you think is the single biggest lesson you take from that that now shapes how you uh, are in life and in property? I think the biggest lesson I took from that was that at the time I blamed everybody else when it happened. But the biggest lesson I took from that was you got to stare yourself in the mirror, man. And the ultimate responsibility was with me. Everything that went wrong with that business was my fault. It was nobody else's fault. I hold myself fully accountable for everything that now goes in my life. So biggest lesson I took away from it was holding yourself accountable and knowing that ultimately every single decision you make is within your power and it's it's your decision. So if it's the wrong decision, you need to be able to deal with it. Yeah, I agree. I think as any entrepreneurs, and it's, I guess especially for people listening in property, I think when you really analyse things and boil it down, it's probably our fault. It's something we didn't say, something we didn't do, a decision we made, something we forgot, something we assumed. We are in control. So if we're in control of the positives, we're also in control when stuff goes wrong. So how did you know this you know, major life event, how did it then lead you into property? And how did you start in property? Well, Ted, one thing I was always doing alongside property was, sorry, alongside the print business was always dabbling in property. So um, I bought my first house, my first family house, and even my first family house, it wasn't a small house. You know, I took a big risk. I bought a house, you know, I was 23 years old, and this is going back quite a few years. Uh, my first house in London at that time was nearly 400 grand, you know, and if you look at it in comparable times, that was a lot of money to outlay. But even then, there was something inside it that was always telling me, no, you buy the right house in the right area where the right people want to live and you'll always be OK. And, you know, I call that my house. I call that house my lucky house. And, you know, it just happens to be on a road called Merlin Road, you know, a bit of a wizard, a bit lucky. And I always say to this day that that is my lucky house because that house has saved my ass so many times. Ted. It's, it's grown in value so many times where I've been able to refinance it and use that money to do other projects, not only do other projects, but save my ass when we talk about later on the project where I lost a lot of money, that lucky house has always been there for me. But while I was doing print, I was always dabbling in property. So I did a, I did a conversion around the corner from where I live. Um, so I, I always knew that property was a massive thing. And anybody who was a real mover and shaker in business who had the nice cars or had generational wealth was some way, shape or form, associated to real estate i mean even the most successful people that i know in in our circle at the moment uh they might have you know bloody fantastic businesses that turn over multiples of millions every single year but they still have a massive portfolio of real estate so i always knew it was the thing to do and you just need to go back and look at people that have done it previously it's uh you know it's never really failed anyone so then t tell me about your first sort of real deal. So one that was a proper investment that, or, or became an investment. Tell me about that. Okay, so my first proper deal was actually a house around the corner from 
my first house that I bought. So I'm in a pub with my friend called Madge. Yeah. Now Madge was a friend of mine who, uh, we used to do a lot of marathon training together. So you can imagine we spent hours and hours and hours together. And Madge is a great guy and, you know, very like, uh, full of life, a real, like a, you know, like almost like a little firecracker always on like, and he was a lot older than me, which used to make me feel great because he was 10 years older than me. So he said to me one day, in the pub this is after a few drinks and you know he's known for telling a few little porkies he said to me he goes hey lad there's a there's a house around the corner from your house up for sale he goes i saw it on right move he goes and and the agent doesn't really know how much it's worth it's on with an agent you know outside of the area and i thought here we go again it's only another mad story he's probably talking shit Uh, and i shit you not i'm walking home after a good night out and i'm like oh my god there's the house Oh my God, it's a board for an agent that's like a hundred miles away. I'm like, Oh my God, this is going to be a deal. This is going to absolutely be a steal. And I shit you not, Ted. The first thing I did in the morning was I rang the agency. They, you know, they had this house priced for 385,000 pounds, which I would say was already 100,000 pounds less than what it was worth at that time. They had no clue. It was a probate sale and it just so happened to go to that agency to sell. They didn't know the area. They didn't know what was happening. Dude, I called them straight away. I said, I need to have a viewing. They said, look, we can get someone around there in a couple of days time. I said, no, 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 it can't be a couple of days. I need to see it today. So they made a special evening visit, got the guy around there. I looked at it. I'm walking around it and I'm thinking, oh my God, oh my God, I've won the lottery. I've won the lottery. I've won the lottery. And then we started discussing the price with the agent and he goes, um, you know, we don't know if it's fairly priced or we don't really understand the market. As soon as he said that, I was like, look, if you can do a deal with me today, I will buy it off you right now, but it means you shaking my hand right now. I offered him £325,000 for it there and then. He shook my hand and the deal was done. I later found out that the woman who owned it, Ted, she was a local woman who lived around here. She died. In her last will and testament, her her estate was worth 4.6 million quid and she'd left it all to the guide dogs charity. Yeah, so really, really, really nice woman, man. And she lived as a pauper herself because the neighbours were telling me she never really had much for herself. She used to look after the community, look after the people. And, you know, I found some really old books, some old photos and stuff like that when we were renovating it. But this was my first deal. So um, it was very badly converted into two flats, into three flats, actually. So when I got hold of it, I completely gutted it, took it back to brick, converted it into two flats. And, uh, yeah, you know, had them on the rental market for a little while, then decided to sell one because I was very over leveraged. So I'd borrowed on my initial house. I'd taken a second mortgage as well. And it was just very tight for me each month to service those loans because the rates were a lot higher than they are now. So stupidly, Ted, I decided to sell one and I regret it. I sold it for £300,000, the ground floor flat. And the guy who owned it sold it less than three years later for £475,000. And every single day I see that flat and I kick myself and think, you idiot, you did not listen to your mum when she said, you do not sell anything. <laughs> I think there's a few lessons there. One, always listen to mum. Secondly, capital appreciation, especially in that kind of area, as much as it's tight, I mean, of course, you know, we can't you know, comment on your personal situation, but I think for people listening, sometimes take a hit or sometimes make the sacrifice, if you can, because of capital appreciation, especially in like London, that is going to happen. Um, 
I think, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a lesson in itself, right? But to get it that cheap and then to have, even you weren't happy with it, but still to have one flat sell for 25 grand less than you got the whole thing for means it was stupidly, I mean, you have to be stupid. I don't care. I can value a house in Scotland. I can. The internet has data. So the fact that an estate agent can do it is, um, well, good for you, but. But you, but you know what it is, Ted? It's, it's spotting the telltale signs. Now, had my friend Madge not told me this, mm. I would never have walked down that street that night because I normally used to take the other street down, you know. And then the fact that we noticed it was an agent outside of the area and, you know, you know, really taking control of the situation, calling the agent, saying, no, look, I need you down here today. I want to buy this place. And, you know, using it to your advantage, understanding that an agency outside of the area may not know the area as well. Yes, they can get comparables online. Um, and I've seen it happen so many times in this area because it is a lovely area. There's a lot of old people that live around here. And as they die, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into probate. And I've seen people make, right? I'll tell you an example, Ted. Somebody bought a house four doors down from where we live. He bought it from an agency that was outside the area, only by seven miles, for six hundred thousand pounds, he kept it for six months. Like he probably that was probably a mortgage condition. Nine hundred and twenty-five grand he sold it for without <laughs> doing a single thing. Jesus, and sometimes the deals are there. Just yeah, dude. When I told my wife about it, she was like, "And you're supposed to be some property developer. Why didn't you spot this? Why didn't you see this?" <laughs> it's a it's a fair point. I mean, oh yeah, hundred percent. She should have slapped me five times for that because yeah, I missed it, especially as it's down my road and I see it when I come out of my house every day. I think, you know what, that's an interesting like thing that people can do because most time we're like, okay, looking at deals, looking at air, but a lot of the time we're not necessarily considering where the agent is and things like that. And actually that's maybe a little addition to people's strategies when they're trying to find source deals is look for stuff like this or look for auction, London auction for a property in, in Liverpool. Think, huh, that's you know, interesting. I mean, they can always go crazily over, but like you have shown... In London, where there's, there's no deals, according to some people, there, you, you had a smashing deal, and literally in your eye line, there was another smashing deal. So that was your Look, kind of... Sorry, Todd. Bottom, bottom line is, anybody who says there's not a deal in London is not looking hard enough. Simple as. Yeah, I think that there's deals anywhere. It may not fit a certain strategy, but there are deals of any type, of any strategy, to be had anywhere. They just you just need to find which one works. So after you did this... You know, were you, I mean, assuming at this time you were full-time property? Uh, yeah, so once the, once the business went into official liquidation and I'd handed back the keys, yeah, I was in full-time property. I did have a very small stint at working for someone who had a print company. You know, they were very good to me. They took me on in my time of need and, you know, paid me a phenomenal salary for my experience and expertise. But, Ted, getting on that train in the morning... At seven o'clock, I felt like a caged animal. And you know, when you know when you're standing there holding the rail like this, I literally, I literally felt like I was an animal in a cage with people all crunched up against me. And I quit within three weeks. If only you had a good podcast like Ted Talks at the time to listen to, maybe it would be a different story. Just maybe. I don't think it was around then, or it was just starting. Maybe I don't think it was around then. It's a fairly new establishment. Twenty eighteen, I believe. I've started just confirmed. Yeah, no, it it wasn't about then. then. It wasn't. So you know, you 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 did a bit of that, but you were full time property. When you did this conversion, you were like, whoa, what a like what an incredible deal! Like, 
how did you know what to do next? Did you plan? Did you have a strategy? Did you do any education? I didn't do any education. No, no, I did no education. I, um, uh, my broker friend, Jonathan, who was also involved in a few deals with me later on down the line, he's always been an estate agent and now he owns a wealth management firm, which does very, very well actually. And, uh, he was always like, oh, you know what, James, look, we, we need to do this, man. We've got this deal here. Let's go and look at this. Let's do something. So we started doing things together, you know, and it was looking at auction catalogs, you know, not even looking online. You had to ask for the auction catalog. You look for it. You go and assess the area and you wanted to do deals. And just, you know, it just kind of went from there. So after that deal, we went on and did a... um we did like a uh, commercial, yeah, you'd call it a commercial to residential. So we bought a shop on the ground floor in Croydon, which had two flats upstairs. Actually, no, it had one flat upstairs. And again, the woman was desperate to sell. You know, she'd inherited it from a family member. She didn't know the true value. It was a shit tip because nobody had paid rent for ages. It had squatters. The shop was nasty. Um, she just wanted it gone, you know. And we saw that as an opportunity and we paid her. £175,000 for the whole building. Uh, for her, that was a great deal. How long ago was it? I was going back a few years. Okay, because Croydon now probably... is like really... Oh, yeah, I've made... Yeah. Back, back then, it wasn't like that, man. Back then, it was not like that. <laughs> but again, having the foresight to see that you've got places like Westfield in Croydon as well, right? That was on the cards, but we only we only read about that in the regeneration scheme. So we knew something was going to happen here. So we paid £175,000 for it. We spent probably about £25,000 doing plans, going through planning, all that kind of malarkey. And we ended up selling that whole building once the planning was on it for £325,000. So you were in yeah. it for under just under two hundred grand. Yeah. And you did the paperwork exercise. And yeah. You sold, made about 125 grand profit before tax. Yeah. yeah. And how hard was getting the planning? Did you did you do anything? Um, I wouldn't. No, I'm not going to take any credit <laughs> for it because I didn't do nothing. No, literally. I mean, we handed it. We had a very good architect at the time um, who was very, very confident. And, you know, he'd got planning in other areas. He come very highly recommended. He's not a very good architect now. He's, he's pretty shit now. But back then he was hungry. He was very, very hungry and, you know, he got it through planning and we were, we were amazed that he did get it through planning and it went through first time, which was amazing for us. And then uh, as soon as we put it up on the open market, uh, you know, like a, a, I think he was a, this guy tried to pretend he was a lot bigger than he was. And it's only when you realize he was like, Oh, I'm a cash buyer. I'm all this and that. And then you realize, no, he's buying it with several bridges. He's doing this, he's doing that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, he could see the opportunity in it, and I do, and he made money on it as well. As far as I know, I don't so know why didn't much. you keep it and you know take it to completion, or was it the plan always just get planning and leave? No, because we looked at it, and when you think, okay, I've made one hundred twenty-five grand for a bit of paper, let's move on, you know, let's move on and do something else. So we did, and you know that was a great deal. And I, these deals don't come along all the time, but when they do, you're smiling from cheek to cheek, you know, jumping up and down, walking down the street, thinking, whoa. I've uh, I did I mean, well. Yeah, to have even between two of you to get 50, 60 grand profit each. And actually, you didn't put that much into it in terms of the deposit. You know, 25% of 170, not a huge amount. You did a paperwork exercise, which you didn't do any work for. Yes, you had to have the cash to front it, but 
there are ways okay, of, just to, you know, just to add we didn't the only reason why we got it for 175 was because we were cash buyers we were able to move on it quickly if we had needed a mortgage and had to wait i don't think we would have got that deal but you could have bridged it's it how we yeah we could have we could have but i think that's you know i think it shows people deals are everywhere and you can just do strategy i mean you know paperwork exercise you could do a leasehold to a freehold you could do a leasehold extension and it adds value especially in london where the prices are crazy so it's interesting you did a conversion you then did this did you have a like what was your plan or was it more just like we're finding deals we'll just find deals there was no plan ted there was no plan there was no strategy all we knew was that we wanted to go into property and try and build you know, a nice big portfolio or make shitloads of money. So we were considering all kinds of deals. You know, back then, I don't ever remember hearing about the rent, you know, rent rent schemes were going on, but they weren't as big as, you know, the trainers have brought it onto the social scene. People have brought it to the forefront. All these things were always going on in the background, but it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to go and adopt a HMO strategy. When I started in HMOs, they weren't even called HMOs. You know, this council came up with some name. I think they were called something, they were like bedsits or whatever they were back then you know there was no real regulation for him either it's only when people started taking the piss that regulations started coming in but no we didn't have any set strategy our strategy was let's make as much money as we can now if somebody said you can buy a shed and convert it into this we probably would have bought the shed and converted it into that because for us it was just let's get the deal done i think you know what i think that is the best type of strategy and it doesn't have to be money it depends what people are driven by but it can be we just want to do good things be successful and of course make money with it because if you walk into a house or a property i don't think you should have the mindset of well i'm a renter renter so if i can't do rent to rent it's not a deal you should go in as i'm a property investor is this a lease option is it a new build is it a planning uplift is it just a buy to let or is it nothing because when you have that open-mindedness i think a lot of courses as we both seen and people we speak to say no you have to be this strategy you have to be this person in this box but it's like nah like do whatever you want like as much as i personally just buy buy to let standard straightforward i'm offering lease options i'm offering other weird stuff you know because we we have that strategy so i think maybe there needs to be a shift in how people are learning and maybe how people are being educated and saying just have a core belief do you you think it benefited you to have that core belief and thing of let's just make money yeah, do you know what? I think you need to believe in yourself. I think a lot of people hold hold themselves back by limiting what they can actually achieve. And, you know, nine times out of ten, if you, you know, you jump into the deep end of a swimming pool, you're going to paddle and come up to the top, aren't you? You know, you're not yeah. going to drag. Yeah. So you kind of figure it out. You'll always figure something out if you've got two brain cells, you know. I'm not saying everybody will figure it out, but don't have a limiting belief in yourself. Get started and figure it out later, you know. You know, who, what's that famous saying? Say yes and figure the rest out later. Yeah. I think Richard, Bran- Richard Branson said that. Um, yeah. And I think, like, you know what? There's a lot of free resources. Your J2 Hub podcast, Tej Talks, you know, a lot of our friends have podcasts. A lot of There yeah. is so much out there that you don't need to be restricted to one strategy. It, might, it helps to focus, don't get me wrong. But if you're buying, then, you know, are you going to say no to 125 grand profit because, oh, we don't do planning? No, I, I don't do planning. Planning pisses me off. But if, if that... Do you? I am taking it. I am taking it. Simple as that. Um. So you did a planning uplift, and then I think you know most recently you've done. You've I guess you've so you've done the flat conversion, done planning uplift, and you've done something really interesting, which is a new build in. Yeah. What I think, from what I can tell, is a very small 
sort of maybe a strange kind of site, maybe an unusual one. Talk me through the new build because you have such a range of experience and so many people want to get into new builds. But, you know, tell us about that experience and the figures, of course. Okay, so the the new build that we got involved in um, was it's in a place called uh, Tooting, which is in southwest London for people that know it, SW17. It's only marginally away from kind of, uh, you know, the real nice exclusive southwest areas of uh, Knightsbridge and all that. It's not too far away. So it's a, it's a decent postcode. Now, the land that we found was, again, it came through a recommendation where a guy had had it for 12 years. Typical, typical Indian man doesn't want to read planning consent. Yeah, It says on there, look, here are our objections. Here are our recommendations. Why the hell are you still submitting stuff that's against what they're saying? I don't ever understand that. You know, it can only be an ego thing. I don't yeah, get it. Yeah, like a hundred percent ego. No, like whatever. No, this is or just, or just maybe they have too much money. They don't care. Twelve times rejected in a period of eleven years. Yeah, <laughs> for the same and thing. <laughs> for the same thing. You know, and you think to yourself, oh, what dear. is going on here? In the end, he got fed up with it. He wanted far too much money for the site. You know, I think we secured the site about £110,000. And six months later, Ted, we got planning permission on it. You know, because we worked with the right firm, we took the right advice. You know, now, if I was doing a site like that before I even offered on it now, I would consult people like, you know, uh, what's your name? John McDermott or, you know, Ben from Aurora Architect. You know, there's so many people that you can consult now before you even put in an offer on a site that could look at a site for you and say, okay, I'm 90% consent, uh, confident I'd get you planning on that. Back in the day for us, it was reading the planning application notes and making an educated assumption on what might happen or a guess. So we brought it off this guy. We worked with a very good architect's firm. They delivered a fantastic scheme that the council just absolutely loved. You know, they addressed issues of height by going into the ground. So part basement dug, you know, anything the council threw at us, we had a solution for it. And I think early on, they realized that, hold on, these guys are going to try and get something on this site because they understand it. You know, they're delivering what we want. They're staying within the guidelines. They're not taking the piss. So anyway, we get planning permission on it. And this guy rings us up. He goes, oh, you ripped me off. You ripped me off, man. You ripped me off. And we're like, hold on, how do we rip you off? Oh, I couldn't get planning permission and you did. I go, okay, so let's have a look at the difference between our planning and yours. He goes, oh, your boys are two-story as well, man. How do you get it? It's like, look, we read it. We didn't go above a certain height. They wanted one bedroom. We put one bedroom in. You were trying to squeeze two. You know, they wanted it to look a certain way. They wanted the windows to be obscured with a brick pattern. You haven't done none of that, man. You've got like UPVC windows that open out and they open out fully overlooking people. You've addressed nothing. How we conned you? So, you know, sometimes in situations like this, you've got to look at the flaws that other people have got. and. I don't don't like to use the word exploit. We didn't exploit him. We just took it off of him. We took his pain away and we made it into our pleasure, you know. But for him at the time, uh, you know, he didn't see it that way once we got planning. Anyway, so once once we got planning, this was at the stage where my firm had, had gone into liquidation. And my wife said to me, she goes, look, if you really don't want to go into print again or do anything like that again, she goes, you need to be doing something because you can't just be mooching around sitting in a pub drinking or just feeling sorry for yourself. She goes, how about I invest some money into this deal with you, like her own money. And uh, I didn't even know she had her own money at that point. Yeah. 
Um, so she invested her money into this deal with me and you know it's the best thing she ever did because without even knowing ted she was she was like a driving force and sometimes you forget that you know you think to yourself hold on um i'm the one running the business i'm the one making the decisions but without even knowing it i had someone behind me pushing me like almost coaching me mentoring me talking to me listening to me and and helping me get through this journey and get to a point where i had the confidence of building this and so I have to say thanks to her because without her, I would never have done it. That site probably would have sat there for a long, long time. We probably never would have built on it. And God knows what would have happened to it, you know. Um, so, yeah, she gave me the initial push, put the initial money in. And as you know, um, I lost that money straight away almost, <laughs> you know, with a dodgy builder. Like, you know, and I could tell you one thing, man, for a long period of time, I couldn't bring myself to tell her because it's like, oh, my God, I've gone from one disaster to another. She's just going to think I'm a mad fucking disaster and just, you know, think I'm a dick, which probably obviously did. But um, at the time, I just couldn't bring myself to tell her. So it brings me back to the lucky house that I talked about early, Ted, earlier, you know, the one that keeps growing in equity. And every five, six years, you think, what? I could pull out another hundred grand. Yes, sir. I'll have a bit of that. And the amount of times I've pulled out equity of that house and it saved my ass. So I was able to release funds from there to get through this. And, you know, it was a painful build. Ted. It was such a, such a painful build because I went into it blind and I didn't know half the things that were needed or required to, to put you through a new build. But what I did have was I had the drive and the desire to learn and get through it. And this is what I say to everybody. Look, when I took that site and started building a house, I had no clue. All right, I knew about renovations, but renovations are different from, you know, structural steels, this, that, design, how does it affect the local area, you know, your your council levy and all kinds of stuff. I didn't know none of this, you know, but I learned. I had the desire to learn and the information is out there to learn. Um, you know, got conned by the first builder, left with a hundred grand hole, had to bite my bop at bottom lip and get through this very painful experience almost gave up at that stage you know almost gave up but due to my mindset taking me back to uh being in this position before when you're feeling immense amounts of pain and disappointment and and being in this place and your mind almost triggers and it says hey james you've been here before and this is how you overcome it this is what you need to do this is what you need to put in place and i was able to overcome that a lot quicker than i was the first time it happened so you know, uh, got myself back together, got a new contracting firm in. And, you know, after I got the new contracting firm in, it was, it was, it was just a, such a pleasure to get through that build because the guys understood it. You know, when you've got a contractor who can look at a set of drawings and say, uh, no, we've got a problem here. We've got a problem here. We've got a problem here. And he's identifying problems on paper before they're built. Whereas my other builders like, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I got it sorted, man. I got it sorted. I got it sorted. And no, you didn't have anything sorted apart from losing me a shitload of money. But once the build, once the build was done, um, you know, the market grew, Ted, during this period of time, the 18 months or whatever it was, there was major delays on this build. But I'm so glad those delays were there because had this gone to plan and schedule, I wouldn't have got the market uplift, you know, and I built a very high tech product because I knew early on I had a vision that I was going to build the sexiest house in this area. Um, it was going to be very high tech, full of tech. And I delivered that and it broke the ceiling sale price and it broke, uh, you know, rental valuations in that area. And even the agents were surprised when they saw it. It was their words were, this is the best one bedroom house we have on the market. 
and it's to the highest spec, you know, and to get feedback like that from people like Foxton's, which is a, a renowned agent, you know, in London, they only deal with high end properties. Um, it, it was, it was all worth it in the end, but point being there's several times I could have given up a hundred grand hole would probably make a lot of people give up. I say this all the time, you know, when you're in hell, you might as well keep going, man, because you ain't going to get any better staying in hell. You need to get out of hell. And that's exactly mm. what it felt like being in hell. So, so um, I guess it might be an obvious answer, but uh, is for those people who want to go straight into development because they want all the money and all the rewards, is property development easy? Hell no. Hell no. Don't just do it because it looks sexy. It looks very sexy building a new house, but... You know what? It's probably sexier having five buy to lets that are generating you decent money, and it's uh, uh, a yeah, less, it a less, <laughs> and it's a less of a risk appetite for you. You know, you can control your risk on it, or you can spread your risk. Whereas with a new development, like I've demonstrated, before you even get out of the ground, you can lose a hundred grand, which I did, and a lot of people I know in new development say the same thing. You know, it's uh, you want to get into new development, be prepared when you lose money. You're not going to lose five, six thousand pounds. You're going to lose several tens of thousands or even hundred thousands of pounds. Yeah. And I think, you know what, before you even even get the ground, you may lose tens of thousands of pounds on planning. You know, Richard Little, who we quote often in development, has been on my podcast. He says the same thing, you know, spent 50, 70 grand on planning sometimes. And it's like, oh, doesn't work. Bye. And it's like, uh, you got 70 grand to play with if you're kind of getting into development. So, it's a fantastic thing. And I mean, how incredible to get some mud and make it into a gorgeous house. Like it's, it's, it's a great feeling. Um, but just obviously do your due diligence with everything that's, that's kind of going on. So, you know, um, I did, I did invite you down to the site, but if I remember correctly, it was too far for you to travel and there wasn't a Nando's nearby. Um, I cannot, uh, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot comment. I cannot agree or disagree with that statement made by the honorable gentleman opposite me. But uh, it's probably true. Two things are actually not that far from me, actually. Like, so, um, uh, well, uh, I, I was uh, trying to tell you that. Oh, well, it's tenanted now. What a shame. I'll just look at the pictures. Um, if you could have dinner with any three people, dead or alive, who would they be? Oh, wow. What a question, man. What a question. So, I think number one for me would be, um, uh, Michael Jordan. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, cool. I'm watching his documentary yeah, yeah, on Netflix, yeah. Yeah, Michael Jordan. I'd love to sit with him because uh, I, I notice he likes a good whiskey. I'd love mm, to just kick his brain yeah. on his whole uh, his whole life and the, how he achieved an incredible success. I'd like to sit with 50 Cent. 50. 50 Cent, man, his latest audio book, highly recommend. Incredible. Highly, 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 highly recommend. And... I think this might be a bit of an odd one, you know. I've not an odd one, but you know, I um, I uh, I lost my dad when I was seven. So if I ever got the opportunity to sit with someone, I'd love to be able to sit with my dad again and just you know, have a laugh and a joke and see what he thinks of where I am and you know really, um, share share the successes with him and you know, um, yeah. So that would be my third one. Of course. I know he'd be very proud of you, James. I'll tell you that. Thank you, man. Thank you. So you've gone from, so this, this, you know, sort of high stress, intense, losing money, long time frame property in London. Just before we move on from it quickly, am I right in saying there's no money left in and it also broke the ceiling price for rentals? Yeah. So to give you the figures, once it was all done and finished, 
the total cost to acquire and build was 358k. It was valued at 525k. We actually went in for a valuation of 500 and it was actually valued more. Yeah, I mean, the valuer came in, he looked at it, he said, you got a toilet in there? I said, yeah. He goes, can I use it? He used it. And it was, this was day before Christmas Eve. He goes, 500? He goes, no, 525. Have a good Christmas. I was like, <laughs> and I was, you know that, that sexy report? I prepared that sexy report mm. for him that I showed you with all the pictures and the whole detail. So yeah, valued at 525. We refinanced it for 75% and took out 394k um we got a lump sum on extra of 36,000 pounds we had in our pocket and it generates 1,650 pounds a month um take yeah take all the costs off and we're left with about 500 quid every single month positive from that build that's pretty tidy um and the fact it was in london and it was on a unusual site and actually people can message you and go to your website and see the pictures of it it is gorgeous um so I think all in all, it's it's an awesome pro- um, project to be a part of. And yeah, to take it from the person before after, you know, all these failed attempts and make something of it is good also for the local community and the council because you're doing what they want and, you know, that's what they like. So you then went from that to investing in the north in in HMOs. What made you kind of go, I've been successful in London a couple of times. Let me go, you know, 350 miles from home and and buy hmos what 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 taught me through that so my strategy uh, as i was doing the new build i realized early on um that i needed when you're doing a new build you need multiple projects on the go because what tends to happen is because a new build takes so much time to complete you've got all your eggs in one basket I realized I needed to have stuff in my portfolio that was generating cash flow for me. It might not necessarily go up massively in value over time, but I needed a high cash flow strategy. So I started looking at HMOs outside of London. I mean, I got one HMO in London, but I decided to start looking outside of London. And, you know, like you do, I started researching, researching, researching. I typed into Google highest yielding postcodes in the UK, like you do, you know? Yes, you do, yeah. So, Solid bit of research, if you ask me. For your for and, James levels, yeah, I agree, yeah. I come off. <laughs> so, went on there, and you know, uh, there was two particular postcodes that kept coming back in the northeast, kept coming back, kept coming back, and you know, I thought, okay, there's going to be loads of competition up there, loads of people are doing it. And what I realised was when I started researching the area more, there was a hell of a lot of local investors, and local investors in the northeast are very particular on what they want to pay for a property and they will not budge five or six hundred pounds. Me being from the London market, I was prepared to go five grand over what they wanted to go because I my strategy was different. My strategy was a cash flow strategy. I was happy to leave a little bit more in the deal so that I was generating you know the money that I needed each month. So I done some research. Uh, I jumped onto Facebook. I tried to find people in the local area, came across uh, you know a chap that we both know. Mr. Muscles, uh, been on your podcast and my podcast. Who? Mr. Ali. Oh, Mr. Muscles. Yeah, yeah. Theo, yeah. yeah. I actually recorded yeah. with him in the north in some random village somewhere. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Theo's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he was my PM on the project itself. And I met him through a Facebook group. You know, we've become really, really good friends. In fact, I've got a call booked with him today. Um, you know, it's been good. So, what we did was we then um, 
I then purchased this uh, property that I found in uh, in an auction catalogue. I started looking at it and I thought, ah, oh, man, this looks great. Uh, reached out to my PM and he assessed the deal for me and said, you know what? This is a good deal. He goes, I'm not going to lie to you, James. He goes, there's a lot of people after this one because he knew the investors that were after it. So I thought, OK, that's fair enough. Um, went into auction. The day of the auction is a telephone auction and I couldn't believe it. I won it. You know, I won it and I won it a three-story, six-bed house for £77,000. And I was like, whoa, this is, like, cheap, man. You know, when you're dealing with London prices, you think, this is a bit too cheap. I'm used to paying this on stamp duty. Yeah. And <laughs> so we get this we get this auction by, and uh, uh, we decide to turn it into a six-bed HMO. And um, it was a very badly arranged six bed uh bed sit before we got it like really really bad i don't even know how people were living there so we refurbed it back to brick did everything put an extension up on the loft new roof windows whole lot so bought for 77 by the time the project was finished edge it stood me in 152k for a six bed hmo fully done looks absolutely beautiful and nice and the figures on that well i'll tell you uh so Total cost to acquire and build was 152, valued at 175k, which I thought was a bit on the low side. Refinanced, we took 131k out. It's got 21,000 pounds left in it, but we get 2,600 pound a month rent. And it's been fully, yeah, it's been fully occupied since the day we took it on, and it leaves us about 1,600 pound positive cash flow after everything's been paid. I can see why you, you went to the north then. I think why most of us kind of go outside of London. And okay, so, you know, you've had such a a varied uh, property career, property CV with so many kind of different things. Um, What does the future hold for James? Um, I think one of the things I want to do moving forward in the future is I want to, I want to get more educated in the sense that I want to get educated more to learn about figures more, you know, assessing a deal, really getting into a deal. Cause over the last couple of weeks, I've met a few people, a few coming up on the podcast actually that are, they're just fantastic, man. I mean, the level of detail people go to, I mean, these guys know how much, how many screws they need for a build. And, you know, I don't want to go to that level of detail, but the fact that somebody would go to that level and that when they do the project, they may only be overspent by 36 quid. And you think 36 quid from a forecast, that is bloody amazing, man. You know, absolutely gobsmacked. So I think the future for me, the immediate future is to learn and build my skills better on assessing deals, more in-depth assessment of deals. Um, and, you know, look at deals in a different way. Don't just go on a gut feeling because gut feelings are good. Gut feelings work in London. Because mistakes can easily be covered up or recouped through markets going up. When you're in a place like the Northeast, if you make a mistake, even for a few grand, it's going to affect you massively. So I want to make sure that my assessment of uh, of strategies moving forward is, is a lot more kind of uh, in-depth. But in terms of projects and project strategy, I want to continue sourcing land in London and building new builds because I've got a bit of a, a buzz for it. Um, and then, yeah, in the northeast or even possibly looking in the Midlands, 
carry on with the HMO strategy. And one thing I'm really keen on doing is working with other people. So I believe in numbers, you know, power in numbers. Um, and there's some people out there do that, that do some fantastic things. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm I, trying my best. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So I want to, you know, there's a certain skill I bring to the table and there's some certain skills that other people bring to the table. You put the two together and you have a phenomenal mix. So um, I want to reach out and start looking at doing some JV things with other people. Because, uh, you know, I always say this, I'd much rather have half of a very sweet cake than have a complete cake. And it doesn't really taste that good or it puts a sour taste in your mouth. So very much about connecting, building with people and, you know, growing together. Because there's plenty of deals out there and you don't have to be greedy. You can share a deal. Mm. Yeah, that's a good. I, li- I like that uh, analogy. Yeah, I'd rather have half of a ball of good mozzarella than a whole ball of average mozzarella. That's mm. what I'm. That's what I'm feeling. Mm, like I like that. rubbery, okay. rubbery nastiness, isn't it? Oh, that yeah, that that cheap stuff. Right, um, James. Lastly, do you have any tips or any bits of advice or warnings that you want or messages you want to send to people who are starting out in property who are listening to this podcast? Uh, number one would be get yourself educated. Yeah, don't be an idiot and think you can just jump into something um, like James would have done a few years ago. Do not do that, guys. You know, 100%. There's so many great resources out there. You know, you've got podcasts. You've got Tej's great podcast that people have taken so much value from always. And, you know, I've had great value from that. There's uh, obviously I'll give my own podcast a, a little plug as well, the J2 Hub podcast, where we try to speak to interesting guests and um Second tip would be remember that not everybody is what they say they are. You know, don't take people on face value. You might be the nicest guy in the world who wears his heart on his sleeve and you think, oh, that builder's so nice. He's going to do this for me. He's going to do that for me. No, do not trust anybody until you have gone away and done your homework on that person. And I speak from experience here, having lost money, had I done my homework, I wouldn't have lost that money because I wouldn't have contracted that person in the first place. Thirdly, my advice would be you need to you need to get out there and do it. You know, if you're not doing it and you're just saying you're going to do it, you're never actually going to do it. You're not going to get started. You know, um, get out there, do it. And one of my strongest bits is develop the right, right mindset. You know, take some time to develop yourself as a person before you put yourself out there in this world. Things like meditation daily gratitude, daily prayers, getting yourself into a good physical state mentally and physically so that you're giving yourself the best foundation to succeed in this field because it's a very enjoyable field properly. Everybody's very, very friendly, but when things go wrong, you need to be mentally prepared to be able to handle them and physically be prepared to take the blows when the blows start landing. Great advice. If you could have a billboard, let's take from Tim Ferriss now, anywhere in the world, one, where would it be? And two, what would it say on it? Um, okay, I think if I could have a billboard, it would be... Um, so when I went to when I went to India, uh, I stayed in a hotel called the Imperial Hotel, really, really nice hotel, like, you know, the, the nuts. But right outside the hotel with a busy, busy highway with loads of, like, you know, you got... It's so weird in India because you've got to... You got the wealthy and then you just got the poor, you know, and they live side by side. Mm-hmm. So I think my billboard would be there pointing at the guys that are hustling and it would say, remember, it's never too late to become something you truly want to become. 
Wow. Fantastic. And that's what I have on the bottom of my email. I have it everywhere because I think, you know, especially for myself who had a business that failed and I've been able to go from being in liquidation to now being liquid. Uh, I like to share with people that, you know, your age is really just a number, you know, not for you, obviously, because you like to take the mick out of me for that. Um, but yeah, you're never too late to kind of change your circumstances or change yourself or change your situation and just bear that in mind. You know, a lot of the successful people out there had started off later in life and many people have had failures. Don't call them failures, call them lessons, learn from them, thrive and, you know, be the best person that you can be. I love it. James, if people want to get a hold of you, I'll also put it in the show notes, but tell them where's the best place to go. Well, you know, they're going to have to write me a letter and put a stamp on it because I'm old school. No, 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 not really. Or a fax. <laughs> I bet you've got a fax machine. No, you? I do not. I don't. Ha- no, I have nothing of that kind. Okay. Um, so yeah, you can find me on Instagram, James H. So anywhere you type James Hoter on Facebook, you'll 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 find me. You know, I'm that that handsome bearded looking fella that people get confused as being Ted's dad or his uncle or his cousin. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much, James. No worries, buddy. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.